0: This podcast is a listener and reader-supported creative effort. Some amazing listeners and readers have chosen paid subscriptions to the Roast West Coast Coffee newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com. They are part of a growing community of people who appreciate craft coffee, learning about coffee, and being inspired by guests on this show. If you are able, and this show has been going well, with the morning mug of your favorite coffee, please subscribe to the paid newsletter at RoastWestCoast.com. Thanks for listening, thanks for subscribing, and thanks for drinking good coffee. Welcome back to the Coffee People Podcast, presented by Roast West Coast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where we meet and are inspired by the entrepreneurial stories of coffee people. Today's guest is Bill Kennedy of the San Franciscan Roaster Company, or SFR for short. He's the head honcho, the CEO, and the owner of an American manufacturing company that builds and designs beautiful coffee roasting machines. In addition to having a really interesting entrepreneurial journey, Bill regularly spouts these little common-sense nuggets of advice. So many, in fact, that I started writing them down, and I'm going to share them on the show newsletter, which you can find on roastwestcoast.com. If you want to see the beauty of these machines for yourself while you're listening, follow at San Fran Roaster on Instagram. It's the best place to see a wide-ranging gallery of the machines both from SFR and from roasters around the world who use them. You can also see SFR at the upcoming Specialty Coffee Association convention. It's in Portland in late April, and if you happen to be there... They will be in booth 253. I hope to run into you there. Right now, I've got a Columbia coffee that I brewed up in a French press, in honor of Bill. That'll make sense a little bit later. And just before we get started, I want to set the scene a little bit. Bill and I were chatting over coffee during one of the many, many bad weather days we've had in the Southwest recently. It was storming outside my podcast booth in Southern California, and I don't think things were much better up in Nevada. Where Bill, clad in a white beard, black framed glasses, and a dark baseball cap, was set up on the other side of the screen. There is a bit of frisky audio during this show, but I promise the conversation is worth it, wherever you are. I hope that you're already enjoying a good cup of coffee today, because it's time for this Coffee People Conversation with the head honcho of San Franciscan Roaster Company, Bill Kennedy. On that note, Bill, uh, thanks for taking some time to talk to me. Oh, sure. Welcome to the show, the Roast West Coast podcast, Coffee People podcast. We're here to learn more about you as the head honcho of San Francisco Roaster Company. You mentioned uh, to me just a minute ago about you were in public education. What were you doing before coffee came along? And was coffee part of your life back then?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I didn't grow up. Uh, being a coffee snob, uh, I didn't drink coffee. I didn't enjoy it. You know, like a lot of people. And uh, But there came a time, I guess, uh, when I was in teaching. And uh, I was young, single, and I uh, had a favorite little place. And, and I, I learned to enjoy coffee with cream and sugar when I went out to breakfast. And I enjoyed a cup of coffee for that. Again, it, it had to have cream and sugar. Uh, But then along came one of my brothers, and he bought a coffee house called the Looney Bean up in Mammoth Lakes. And so I started uh, getting a little bit into the coffee scene and seeing what that was like and uh, really started, you know, learning a lot, enjoying it, and then finding out what real good coffee tastes like, coffee well-roasted, started discovering different flavor nuances and so on. And I don't mean like, you know, vanilla hazelnut. I'm talking about actual flavor notes and that you can bring out of a coffee. And uh, there came a point where I just kind of crossed the bridge. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn how to like coffee, and I'm going to stop cold turkey, no cream and sugar. And it uh, took two weeks. And after that two weeks the thought of putting cream and sugar in the coffee (laughs) it was it was radical 180 degree turn it became i won't say an an obsession but it it became something that i just i had to taste every single coffee i good or bad i had to taste it i had to determine what its flavor notes were were being you know we, we uh uh, earlier, we were talking about, you know, OCD tendencies, and uh, that's me. I had to taste every kind of cup of coffee that there is, determine what happened, uh, come up with a diagnosis, good, bad, or otherwise, of, you know, what's going on. And it, yeah, it became, you know, a passion, uh, a keen interest of mine, and something that I think about all the time, and just just basically a fascination.
0: At some point, it turns into something that you you move into as a career. But before I ask about that, there had to be something that made you decide that you were going to leave public education. Was there a tipping point there that made you think that? Was it just an opportunity presented that you were going to go a different direction? You know, what happened to make you think, I'm going to veer off this path that I've been on, especially... I have a little experience in that education field. There's a track that people can get on and go right through to retirement, and uh, you veered off of it. Why'd you do that?
1: You know, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, When I made that decision, I was a school administrator, and of course, I was seeing a side of life that most people don't. I had made a determination that my kids were not going to be subject to a lot of the especially negative socialization that, that happens with peers. And I uh, decided we're going to homeschool our six kids. And so, yeah, I mean, we've raised our kids. They went K-12, you know, three have three college graduates. And uh, they are all been very successful. But I just did not want them to have those uh, negative influences. Uh, secondly, uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I wanted to leave a legacy for my kids. And if they wanted, wanted to have the opportunity to move into a family business, you really can't move into uh, a family government job. Well, not legally. And uh, <laughs> I wanted something for them to at least have a choice to uh, accept or or reject to do something else. But uh, I really enjoy being uh, an entrepreneur and the challenges that come with it. And uh, so those two things were probably the biggest reasons why I let public education. School boards don't like it if the principal uh, will not put their kids in the school. They understood my position, but the optics weren't good. And uh, so it just it just made sense. And uh, it took a couple of years to uh, make the transition. and But I there came a point where I pulled the trigger and Left public edg- education and, you know, the security of a regular government paycheck uh, for the uh, uh, the exciting ride of uh, entrepreneurial <laughs>
0: adventures. <laughs> the, da- <laughs> the daily thrill of panic and un- uncertainty. Yes. <laughs> How did you end up specifically with San Francisco Roaster Company? And I might be a little hazy on the details of my, my history, but that it was a company that already existed and correct me if I'm wrong, that you purchased.
1: So uh, the San Franciscan roaster, uh, it was a brand. And I did buy uh, the company there. Uh, it came about, I have a couple of brothers that were in the coffee business. And one brother was uh, opening up uh, another lily bean in Montrose, Colorado. And so uh, all the brothers kind of came together to help open the store and do this and that. He had purchased a used San Franciscan roaster, and it needed some repairs, and I contacted the owner of the company, and we were able to buy some parts, but not everything, and found out he was closing up shop. Well, at the time, I was still looking for that entrepreneurial opportunity, and uh, so I went to actually talk to him about it, so what are you going to do with the company, because he was just going to close up and so we ended up having a discussion and three months later moved my family to little town fallon nevada and uh, i started uh, my undergraduate degree is industrial management so i wasn't entirely you know unfamiliar with with manufacturing we just started we just started with the group it was put everything on the line it was an all-or-nothing proposition for our family. It was, yeah, uh, it was. Uh, yeah, it was also two thousand eight, and that was when all the crunches started happening in the economy. And we we made it though. Um, but yeah, uh, I would say a, a lot of praying, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and you know, sometimes that were very very tight through the whole processes, all the processes it, it was good. I, I can look back with fond memories. It wasn't traumatic you know it was it was exciting you know it was very exciting and time after time things happened just at the right time for us in those earlier years and uh, we continued growing to uh, what we are today and we, we expect to continue growing even even back.
0: I remember 2008 very clearly because we were trying to sell our house as we moved across the country and it was a rough go of it. My wife and I quick aside ended up selling our house and getting a check for $460 uh, profit and we were grateful because we knew people that weren't I was in real estate at the time and uh we took that $460 and we spent 60 of it on a pizza and beer dinner and uh put the rest in the bank and off we went. So it was a I remember yeah. that very very well. Your roasters appeal to me as a person with a background in design because you have integrated both art and functionality. When I see one, I'm, I'm drawn to it. And I'm, I think that's really interesting because it's not necessarily the first thing you would think of when you're thinking about the efficiency of a coffee roaster or the functionality of the product, but you haven't sacrificed that form over function. I'm wondering why why does that design matter into the build and into kind of the ethos of your company? What, what is important about that that you continue to do that when and I'm not trying to to slight another brand or any other thing, but the a lot of other roasters are very streamlined, very stainless steel, very clean uh, lines. Um, there's some of the new ones are essentially boxes with a little hole in it and you kind of reach in and do your thing. Uh, Why did you guys, why, why was that important to the company and why have you continued that over all of this, these years that you've been in charge?
1: I have to give credit to my predecessor, you know, just for the the bones of the machine. He used to work uh, for one of our competitors, uh, ProBot decades ago and um, they, uh, they have their systems and so on. He's a good old boy from Oklahoma, had a lot of uh, real mechanical genius about him. And it didn't always fit with, you know, a large company. And uh, so he is, you know, came to a point where, you know, he was an Oklahoma redneck. You know, they were a German company and, you know, their ideas and precision. and it, it was a culture clash. And uh, so they parted ways. He ended up uh, starting this company where he was basically re- refurbishing uh, vintage European roasters robot Somniac, got hot etc Petrosini. and he'd uh, he'd take these European roasters he would Americanize them with uh, you know voltage and frequencies so the motors would turn properly here in the United States and then he'd resell them and he came to learn a lot of what were the best aspects of these multiple European brands and what were the worst, especially when it came with cleaning and maintenance. And he told me at had an epiphany one day when he had a sea container full of broken roasters that he picked up for nothing and shipped over from Europe because uh, he still had his contacts uh, with uh, Probot and so on. And uh, they were sent to uh, this little shop in Fallon, Nevada and he'd go through and he said he went through, uh and he ended up scrapping, you know, eighty percent, ninety percent of that entire container. It just wasn't worth the time to go through and repair those. And he kinda had a little epiphany and decided, no, oh, I can do my own. So he, again he took all that knowledge, he took his natural mechanical genius, uh, created a prototype, got it certified, and and then he started production of uh a 12 kilo roaster called the SF 25. It was, you know, it was going to be an American roaster. So American, you know, measurement systems and so on. And uh, he did that. And that was in 1992, uh, 31 years ago. Uh, And he kind of caught the beginning of, uh, you know, the wave of specialty coffee back then. And he built these roasters like a tank. You know, a lot of the conflict he had uh, with his is the modernization. Uh, Mostly streamlining manufacturing methods where, let's just say the heavy cast iron, it was too costly to do that. Cast iron has wonderful heat diffusion characteristics. It's also a very brittle metal, and so it has to be very thick and so on. And Some of the design changes were just in alignment with Manufacturing improvements in in, in this industry generally, and so you can manufacture the coffee roaster as fast as Whirlpool can make a dishwasher, and that's what was going on. He 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 worked against that. That's when he left, and then he took over, you know, doing the refurbishing, and then he started. He designed his own roaster. He built it like a tank, uh, but he he. Eliminated the cast iron and went with that mild carbon steel, but very thick plate. You know, just like I said, literally bulletproof. (laughs) And so he did that. And then uh, his son didn't want to follow in his footsteps. And so I, again, I discussed, you know, I found the opportunity. We worked a deal and moved my family to Fallon. And I started working, uh, uh, building uh, the roasters. The art and function. Now, my brother owned one of these when he bought the coffee house in that place, the Moonie Bean. It was like the sixth roaster that my predecessor had built, and he uh, had this. And I—that's when I started roasting. I was this middle school administrator, and it was great therapy to sit and roast coffee and hear the whoosh, 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 whoosh of the beans and the drum, and and uh, pay attention to the development and. And again, at first, uh, it was turning green beans brown, and hopefully you pull them out of the roaster before you have a fire. I mean, that level of knowledge. and But it grew from there, and we got better and better at it. And then, lo and behold, a few years later, I owned this company that built that roaster. <laughs> and that was, that was a cool transition for me. But I've always loved old stuff. I've always loved stuff that was built solid- In my office, uh, I have a 120 year old GE brass blade fan that still works. And it's, it's an art piece. And, but yet mechanically and electrically, it still works. It'll still blow the desk off the papers off my desk. It says people don't make stuff like that anymore. It's a really a throwaway culture. And I purpose, I'm going to, I'm going to continue making things like I was going to personally own that device that we make and how I would want it to be. And then I impart that to our clients. And uh, I think we do a pretty good job at that. And uh, as we've grown, uh, we've been able to maintain a good reputation, good customer service and in that regard. And uh, I'm reticent to see it on, <laughs> on a podcast. But, you know, since I've owned the company for the last 15 some years, if you call during non-business hours and you hit option one goes to on my cell phone and i still do that because i get that few calls sometimes I get a call from you know the middle east or europe in the middle of the night waking me up asking for pricing or something like that <laughs> but uh yeah if i'm awake i'll answer the call and i've been on that side of the fence where if you have any downtime and you you got a big order to put out I'll do what I can to help you put out that order if you can.
0: I have to share this story with you, actually. The reason that I reached out to San Franciscan to invite you on this show in the first place is another guest of mine, and I don't want to be quoted on this, even though I'm quoting myself, but I think it was John Pearson at Servant Coffee in Denver. He told me that when he was first getting into the business, he was looking for a roaster, and he didn't have any experience one way or another, and he called... San Franciscan and you answered the phone in, you were across, you were on some trip somewhere and he didn't realize until halfway through the conversation that you had picked up the phone, despite the fact that you were maybe in Asia or somewhere. I don't know who it was, uh, but the the idea that he called and someone answered the phone uh, meant so much to him that he decided to go that way. And if I'm wrong on the, the roaster, I apologize. The idea of building things to last, I personally love, I think there's a demand for it from people my generation and and younger, I'm in my forties, my brother's in his thirties. And we both kind of have this conversation all the time where, you know, I bought a washing machine and two years later, it doesn't work. And not only does it not work, but nobody wants to fix it, you know, or it's going to cost me twice as much to fix it as it is to replace it. And it's like, my parents were still using the same washing machine that I grew up with as a kid and, you know, it was fine. And so I think there's that demand. We just need to get a wave of consumers to keep pushing for those things. So I certainly appreciate that. It kind of leads me to this question about success. Uh, success is hard to sustain. You mentioned you've been doing this since '08, And I'm guessing at some point there were some tough times and lows. You mentioned that and you, where things were tight. What advice could you give people listening just on maintaining belief that your course is Right. That you're, you know, you said you put it all on the line. I mean, at some point, do you go? Maybe I should have put it on a different line. <laughs> you know, uh, what, what, uh, how would you address that?
1: You know, I, I would say, you know, from an entrepreneurial point of view, uh, one, make sure you believe in your, in what you're doing, and if you do, and I did, and and I and I, I believed in the values behind what we were doing. You just have to have grit uh determination perseverance and endurance and uh you know uh our our marketing advertising uh young lady her her father's a a nevada rancher and we were talking about this just the other day and she said yeah my my dad He would go uh he says uh what you do is uh you get it done or you get it done those are your choices and you just do it you just do it and uh of course obviously you know sometimes you're going to reach a point where uh it's clearly not going to be sustainable you know and uh you know failure is your only option for that but in any entrepreneurial uh enterprise you know where you take failure is you you just learn from it and you start your next opportunity and so that uh yeah, failures can happen, uh, even within uh, a business as it's growing, without having to fail the entire business. But this is where the grit and the determination is, uh, seeking counsel and uh, making things going. Uh, money is nice. Uh, capital is king. But but uh, people, <laughs> you know, banks, it's like w- when you need the money, they're not going to lend it. And when you don't need the money, they're, all over you, <laughs> but it's, it's when you need the money, but money isn't always the solution. Sometimes not having the money uh, requires you to, again, uh, knuckle down and find uh, a smarter solution to uh, accomplish the same thing instead of throwing money at it, and this is where you just learn wisdom from, you know, in, in an entrepreneurial uh, enterprise like that. And then surround yourself with a great team, you know, people that are, are humble, you know, they're, but they're, they're willing to do whatever it takes to, to make the enterprise succeed. And uh, they're hungry and to, you know, they, they will work hard. And uh, they're great team players. They know when to speak and when not to.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and you just build a cohesive team as your organization grows. And that helps you with the hard times. I mean, everybody went through hard times the last couple, three years with the pandemic. And, um, you know, some, some people got relief uh, from the government and, you know, that was necessary uh, with the government mandated shutdowns, you know, the government took care of, you know, the, the people just to help as many people stay in business as possible. But, uh, you know, now we're past that and uh, we're still in, in uncertain times you know, in my business, you know, coffee. Uh, I got to share a little story. One, one of the guys that worked for me years ago, he uh, he grew up in Fallon and uh, his high school, he did some work for uh, an older couple. And, and at the end of the job, uh, the, fella, the older fellow said, hey, uh, can I pay you in silver dollars because we're short on cash? I said, sure. So I gave him a few silver dollars and, and he noted that the old fella had a silver dollar, uh, little hole drilled on it and it was on his keychain. And he said, uh, there you go, a silver dollar on your keychain. And the fella said, yep. That way I know I always have a cup of coffee, enough money for a cup of coffee, you know. And so for me in the coffee business, the coffee is that simple pleasure that people are going to hang on to through thick or thin. And so people want to uh, meet that need. Across this country, Uh, you know, it's my hope that we can help these uh, smaller entrepreneurs uh, jump into something where where they can meet that need. That's one of the other fascinating things about coffee, incredibly complex, organic, and uh, and yet it brings uh, so much pleasure to people. And I like to build, you know, our roasters so that we can help our clients, you know, meet their clients' needs as, as best they can.
0: Well, that brings us to this concept of the future and how things are changing. I think the coronavirus impacted every business. We I mean everyone is kind of aware of that. We've talked about it a lot on this show. If, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of your the building of your machines happens here in, in the United States. I'm wondering how manufacturing in America was either kind of challenging or was a benefit during that time. And then as we're going forward, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that off. I'd rather just address kind of the idea that you're you're doing this work here, which is something I've heard from a couple other coffee industry people that surprised me. When so many manufacturing, in particular, industries are not. You know, how did that benefit you or challenge you over the last three four years?
1: Well, yes from a, from a cost accounting point of view, uh, sometimes it's easier to you know accept a poor quality component, uh, if you outsource it overseas. And uh, I was just never going to do that. Ours, our our philosophy is always going to be 100% American made. We make sure that the steel that we receive is domestic, mined, uh, refined and milled in the United States of America. We find that the American steel is, is superior uh, to any other steel from other parts of the world that can be produced more cheaply, and there are a number of reasons for that. But, uh, one, it, it has to be American made Two, There's a, there's a culture and a sense of pride in maintaining an organizational kind of, kind of tight knit organization. And that sense of pride in the work that's done by all of the people in the organization is manifest in the product that they out, put out. So there's so many different levels of, let's just say natural control. It's not, it's not, you know, controls that are enforced by, you know, punishments. If there's, if there's things done wrong, but they're kind of intrinsic controls that are put that everybody has because they really want to put out the best product possible. And that's part of the American culture and the the, the nature of America taking pride in, in workmanship. And, uh, uh, really, uh, there, there's a joy that comes with that. And that joy translates into uh, superior quality that I think you find in American craftsmanship than you, than you find in other places in the world. And again, I, I don't want to be disparaging at all because everybody has their, their cultures and everything. But what I find unique uh, about the American experience is that uh, attitude, that attitude that yeah we're the best and we're and we're going to strive to be the best and if someone beats us well dead gimmick we're going to beat them back and we're going to do it better you know it's that kind of a kind of a uh competitive spirit that's not angry it's, it's almost fun you know it's 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 uh okay i see what you did there I'm going to do it better. a sense of uh, ingenuity, you know, I put that on on the side plaque. So the, the San Franciscan roaster, uh, all of them have the, the phrase "art" and ingenuity. And you know, that goes to with the craft of roasting coffee, but it also has to do with uh, the approach we take to manufacturing our our coffee roasters. Um, one, I will say this, and I know it's me saying it, but we have the most attractive coffee roaster in the world. We just do. And I will argue till I'm blown in the face with anybody who says otherwise. And I will still be right. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, that's how I, and, and we'll always be that way. Two, we're always looking ways uh, uh, to be, you know, to, to exercise levels of ingenuity to make it, So that it's as ergonomic as possible for our clients while at the same time encouraging our clients to not push a button and turn coffee roasting into basically wait till you hear the beeper and then take the fries out of the the oil. Like you hear the beepers and McDonald's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more complex like that. Now there's a place for coffee roasters like that. And so I don't want to, you know, detract from business models that do that. But our particular niche in this uh, market are for people who are passionate about coffee they're, and they're passionate about the craft and they're willing to spend the time that it takes to understand what happens during the roast process and uh, to embrace that and to produce a very fine coffee uh, for uh, their retail clients or their wholesale clients. Uh, To make that simple pleasure happen like that old fella had uh, that that longing or that he was always going to keep that silver dollar on his keychain so he could always be insured of that simple pleasure. And so we're seeking to make sure that that simple pleasure is fulfilled uh, for our clients and for their clients, too. And again, it's a it's a culture. uh, It's a process. It's a pride in craftsmanship. It's a pride in making things beautiful, pleasing to the eye. You know, the look of the roaster just by itself adds, and there's, there's a theater about it. There's an ambiance that it brings to a coffee house. Uh, We have one up in Virginia city and that uh, people take their picture next to that coffee roaster all day long during the, the busy seasons because like I said, Uncle Blue in the face. We have the best looking coffee roaster in the world.
0: Well, your roasters are often showpieces in, especially smaller independent coffee roasters yeah. that I've been in. I certainly uh, have more than a few photos of them on my camera roll. Uh, I find that I I end up gravitating towards them. So. Uh, I haven't looked at every roaster, so I can't 100% agree with you, but I do think that when I see one, I'm naturally drawn to it for its its uh, attractiveness.
1: Yeah, and, and just because you have an experience, it doesn't mean <laughs> it's not going to happen eventually. Uh, so, I, you know, and, and there are always new, uh, new roasters coming out of different parts of the world, and they look a lot – oh, no one can really match what we've done, though, you know. I see roasters with lots of lights and switches and displays and whatever. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I joke with, with folks. I said, look, the, the more your coffee roaster looks like a lit up Christmas tree, the more they're trying to compensate for what they're not doing right on the inside. And uh, we really, really work hard on the metallurgy and the heat. Diffusion characteristics, so that you can you can distribute heat convectively, conductively, uh, with radiant heat, Uh, and you have a a broad diversity of heat applications because each one will bring a different aspect to the flavor notes of the coffee during during different parts of the roasting process. So we spent a lot of time with that, and again, the type of uh, the type of person that embraces uh, the roasting that we facilitate is someone who is going to be passionate about the coffee, and they're, they're looking really hard at the craft uh, to just like uh, let's put it this way, you get a really good coffee, and you, you have a couple of impressionist painters, and you have a Monet, and then you have Van Gogh. Both of them go to the Louvre, check out their paintings, go you know go to the, the art Museum in London on Trafalgar Square. And you can stare. I mean, I, I remember staring at, at uh, the sunflowers from Van Gogh for 45 minutes and then then looking at the lily pond that Monet did, and I couldn't stop staring at it. Totally different, both impressionists, but do- different approaches to art. And, and coffee is very much the same way. And my goal is to make a coffee roaster so that if you have an artist that puts out you know their version of a monet in the coffee cup and you have another roaster that puts out their version of a van gogh in a coffee cup they're still meeting the the desire that people have for that simple pleasure but it's still a monet it's still a van gogh and uh, we want to be able to facilitate for that that for people i don't know it's kind of hard to explain but it's it's a culture it's a mindset. I won't go as far as to say it's a spirituality. I, I suppose some people could say, can say that too. Let's put it this way. It goes to the soul. And I've sold roasters to larger organizations and they will have one brand that mass produces coffee that typically goes on grocery store shelves and stuff like that. And they'll say, yeah, that roaster has no soul, but your roaster does. And so I think that, you know, as a metaphor, it kind of that describes how we're set apart from other uh, manufacturers. Not to say that uh, other coffee roasters can be more efficient. There's more things you can touch or buttons, uh, less capability required on the operator. You know, to uh, to roast coffee a certain way. There's all kinds of automation and stuff that's available. We can go that way, but i am measured about how far we go that way because I really want it to be part of the human experience, both in roasting the coffee and then enjoying the coffee that was roasted on our machine.
0: It reminds me of the argument uh, between an automated strike zone and baseball. you know is there a relationship between the roaster and the machine, or is is that roaster anyone could step into that spot and and hit those buttons. And the idea that having a relationship between a, a person and the the tool that they're using, I think in theory, the idea is that it would imbue some of that spirit and some of that effort and some of that, that craft that you mentioned into the product that they're producing. And as a consumer, whether you realize it or not, you are experiencing that you're feeling that hopefully that does bring up the point you mentioned automation. And I'm thinking about this kind of point we are at in the world. I'm sure every generation believes they're at the tipping point. Uh, that seems to be a commonality. But right. with with the discussions about climate change and sustainability and our discussion today about a building to last, how does SFR uh, and the industry generally, where do you see that going? How does that impact your decision making for the future in the coffee industry, which is really unique in that it connects pretty much every corner of the world. There's a few non-coffee drinking areas, but for the most part, coffee's drunk almost everywhere in the world. And that coffee community is only growing in places like India and China and, you know, huge population centers. And yet it seems like our the places we can grow coffee is also shifting and the need for sustainability is growing. How does your company fit into that?
1: Yeah, well... Yeah, it's we're kind of a drop in the bucket as far as, uh, you know, market share or where we fit in the world. You know, we're still one of the last. We're, we're probably one of the last closely held companies that are still family owned. Uh, that are, aren't corporate, you know, so there, there's a couple of things. One, yes, of course, we want to be good stewards with everything. Interestingly, we have, you know. Our larger roasters require, you know, s- smoke and fume mitigation. And uh, we've always had an afterburner on our 12 kilo since the very beginning back, back in the early nineties that was capable of basically using a smaller incinerator to incinerate the smoke and fumes that came off the roaster. And then it, in the exhaust that came off the incinerator from the, uh, the basically incinerating the smoke and fumes from this from the hot air. We basically repurposed that heat, reused that heat to uh, mitigate the smoke and fumes that came off the cooling air. The cooling air would, would uh, obviously, that air is drawn from the environment and pulled through the beans to help cool them as soon as the roasting process is done uh, so that you can well, for lack of a better term, lock in the flavors, you know, and keep the coffee from continuing to roast in your cooling tray. But, you know, you're still pulling a lot of steam. Uh, The the fumes of the roast are still coming off of there. still uh, smoke from the beans, especially at the beginning of the cooling cycle. And uh, so, but introducing that heat into the hot air stream uh, after the afterburner, that hot air will incinerate all that cooling air. And so we have a smaller afterburner that's about one-third the size of what it would need to be if it took both airstreams and ran them through together before the afterburner, where actually we want run a single airstream through the afterburner and then reuse that exhaust heat to mitigate uh, the airstream from the second. And so we've always kind of been, you know, environmental before it became a thing we just have always uh, wanted to do that cause, because it would save energy you know well i mean we had the, the gas crisis back in the 70s and that kind of thing so you know saving on fossil fuels uh, has always been um kind of in the mindset there so we've always kind of mitigated that there there are other devices nowadays that uh, can help mitigate. It doesn't mitigate 100% like a uh, thermal oxidizer will, or what is known in the industry, as an afterburn. But they do they do really well in mitigating you know, water scrubbers. Um, there's a company called Vortex that does that other uh, uh, or electrostatic uh, devices that will basically zap the smoke particulates out of the airstream. They don't do so great on the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds, the smells, the fumes. But again, there's a lot of different other devices now that didn't exist before.
0: I was just going to say, just listening to you talk about this and some of the science and some of that technical stuff goes right over my head. But I've always kind of felt that in a lot of ways, thinking ahead, environmentally friendly or whatever you want to call it, uh, concerning yourself about things like climate change, even if you don't believe in that or you don't buy into that or that's not something you care about it seems to lean towards good business to be aware of you know i'm going to make my product use less energy than more or i'm going to i'm going to invest in things that make things more efficient you mentioned early in this in that last uh answer that you're one of the last family owned companies and you we talked earlier earlier about uh you had three kids that are college graduates and successful and and you also mentioned, I'm bringing a lot of this all around here near the end, about how you as an entrepreneur wanted to leave something, a legacy of some sort, that they could choose to be part of or not. I'm wondering if any members of that family have come on board with you and, and are part of this current iteration of, of San Franciscan.
1: Well, being a homeschool dad, all of my kids have been involved in the business as soon as they were old enough to be involved in the business. So, uh, yeah, my, my three older ones, whether they were, you know, one of my daughters is more, uh, business finance accounting. So she worked a lot in that, uh, you know, a couple, well, two of my sons are currently, you know, they're working under as an apprentice, uh, with one of our journeyman fabricators and, you know, they're learning the craft, you know, uh, it, it would be their shop if you would equivalent. Uh, So they're welding, they're fabricating, they're using uh, equipment uh, in the machine shop. And so they're learning, they're learning a a valuable skill. In in that regard, as far as, uh, you know, wanting to jump in, I would say they're probably also a little bit young for that uh, to decide. You know, I I think everyone has an interest here or there. But, uh, you know, they're pretty early on in their career, and part of my thought was part of their education too is work for a big company, you know, big companies with big budgets that uh, have uh, you know, big budgets to uh, to create best practices, and then learn big best practices, you know, that they can bring back to a small company, so that we're not a mom and pop, uh, so to speak. We we are a good process with good, uh, you know, or a good company with good processes and methodologies and so on. And so I would say that my oldest kids are in that phase, you know, where they're, you know, they're just into corporate, uh, you know, larger companies, you know, one one is an engineer, one one is uh, going to be working in one of the big four accounting firms and, you know, one is getting married. And so good for her. She's going to get married. Uh, and that's what she wants to do. She wants to get married, be a mom, and more power to her. And then uh, the, I still have three that are still not uh, in college. But, uh, you know, they're thinking about it, you know. And they, they know that that opportunity exists. And so if it turns into a legacy thing for, for them to step into, uh, it will. And by the time they graduate, you know, who knows what the if the older kids will – wanna either stay in a in a corporate field or if they want to do something entrepreneurial. The nice thing about an enterprise like this in manufacturing is you do have a lot of different uh skill sets necessary uh to make the entire team work. And so their interests they won't have to deny their interests engineering, accounting, marketing, sales, all those kinds of things.
0: I have two brothers and um I think we grew up in in the restaurant industry with our family, and uh, I think we all at some point said, well, we're going to get the hell out of here and (laughs) go off into the world, and I always believed I'd go out into the world and get a real job and not work in that industry again, and somewhere along the line, I I came back to it, to the restaurant industry, not working necessarily with with the family. They weren't in that anymore, but... All of those skills I learned as a kid came back around as an entrepreneur and all and the things that I've done. And now my two brothers and I, we all, all three of us are entrepreneurs. We all own our own businesses and we've all kind of put one foot into that world and then came back. And I can't say as to why that is not, certainly not everyone does that, but I think there is an interesting, there's, we talked about belief earlier. I saw my parents do it and I know how hard it was. I know what it felt like when things were tight, and I still have this desire to try to do it myself. And uh, I've been through a big entrepreneurial failure, and uh, it's it was it was hard and it was scary, and uh, exactly. certainly has made me hesitate a few times. But I also know the reward of of that feeling when I leave at the end of, or at the end of a day. I don't ever leave; I'm always at work. But yes. <laughs> But I know what that feeling is like when I've done something that I'm proud of. And it's uh, selfishly, it's mine. I did that and I can leave that behind and uh, feel good about it. I've taken you well beyond the time that I told you we were going to I was going to steal you from your world. I would be remiss, though, if I didn't ask you if you didn't have a piece of advice for an entrepreneur, someone like myself or anyone listening, uh, a lesson that you've kind of taken with you over the last 15, 16 years that or you've, you've acquired moving forward, you know, what, what advice would you give to someone who was in the position you were, you know, 15 years ago?
1: I would say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you go into. Um, actually, it doesn't really matter if you have an actual passion for something, you know, that's you know, kind of like the coffee thing for me. Uh, I would say, though, that if that's what you want to do, seek counsel and uh, jump in. Now, I sought counsel, and everyone told me, don't go into manufacturing because <laughs> all the manufacturing is going overseas. I kind of resisted that and bucked against it. And, uh, you know, it's working. And uh, because I do know that people seek value. And the other thing I would say is that whatever you do, you're going to create something that value is going to be recognized by your client. And you need to be able to communicate that value because people will part with their money. If they see the value, whatever it is, if you charge more than somebody else, but they think that X, Y, and Z are pretty much, you know, there's no difference between X, Y, and Z, and you have Z and it's twice as much money, then they'll they'll choose X and Y. If they choose Z though, it's because Z portrays themselves as not equal to X and Y, but the the value is there. So you're gonna have to learn how to communicate the value. Be careful on your pricing. Uh, don't go too cheap, though, because people—if you charge too— if you don't charge enough, sometimes people won't buy because they think it's cheap. But uh, part of pricing is is your communication of value too. But obviously, you see, you don't want to overcharge either, or you'll price yourself out of the market. And then grit, determination—you know, persevere, persevere, persevere. Uh, Like like the old rancher said, you know, you have two choices, get it done or get it done. (laughs) And uh, you kind of have to have that mindset and don't be afraid.
0: All good things. Honestly, I'm getting way more out of this than you are today. I can tell you that. Did we miss anything that you want people to know about your company, about you, about what, you know, what you've been accomplishing? Uh, Is there something I should have asked that I didn't?
1: Oh well, I could totally go into a sales pitch, but uh, <laughs> I don't really want to do that. I I think people people do uh, who are serious about being an entrepreneur do a lot of research. Naturally, it's going to be hard work regardless. But yeah, hey, I I would I would prefer that you uh, talk to all of our competitors. You know, as long as you include us in one of those, because we may not be your best choice. Okay. And we we may uh, uh, we may be your best choice, but you don't have the capital, you know. So you know, let us help you find something else or different. At the end of the day, you know, it, it's it, it's I can walk away from a client, you know, and, and honestly t- tell them maybe we're not the best choice for you, just as easily as a client can walk away from us too. And and I think that's an important balance. It's uh, you're making yourself vulnerable, but the client needs to know that I'm not going to sell something and manipulate them at all costs. I think it's important to treat people as, you know, honor people and, and honor their choices. And I think that honor will be returned back to you if you do it that way. And that said, I'm not going to go into my pitch. Uh, I'm going to let you let let the listener, you know, if you, if you have an interesting coffee roasting, you Now give give a shot, talk to us and then talk to everybody else, not everybody, but you know, the, the people in, in you know who the, who the good brands are and you know who the cheap brands are. I would say avoid the cheap brands. You're always going to get what you pay for. And if you, if you don't pay for it now, you're going to be paying for it continually. You just, you just are throughout the life of that piece of equipment. I would encourage you, whatever brand you go with, go with a good brand, a brand that's got a great re- reputation, and a brand that's going to be ro- robust enough to grow with you for a lifetime. And I'll leave it at that.
0: All right, then. The last question that I have asked, all except for one guest who I just forgot and I regret it every day. Uh, if you were to go down the street and stop into a coffee roaster, what do you order to drink?
1: Oh, what do I order? Um and I'm I'm pretty plain. I order what everybody else orders, what the majority and that's just a straight cup of coffee. And I do like what I said before. I give it the analysis. You know, I'm a, I'm a Q grader so I, I you know I know how to grade coffees and all that. And I I just have to I just have to put myself through that experience and it's the most common experience that that coffee roastery would have their customers. That's what I go for first. Personally, uh, I I just really enjoy the the French press method and the mouthfeel and everything. I eat. I always leave the mud at the bottom of my cup, <laughs> but uh, I just have to. I have to me that gives me the broadest experience of that cup. And uh, so, uh,
0: we're on the same page there. I, I always espouse my love for the French press on the show. Bill, thank you so much for spending an hour with me and um, talking about about you and about your company. And I'm grateful for all the the thoughts and advice that you gave. Well, th-
1: this has been a delightful experience, Ryan. And I guess everybody likes to talk about themselves, anyway. I just don't do it that often, and so it's, it's refreshing. Um, but it also, I think, in the reminiscing, you you look back. And you get that sense of satisfaction and knowing that yeah I've been through these really hard times I am I'm at where I'm at I'm in this hard time and I'm in this good time, but life is good and yeah, I like where I'm at and uh, uh, thank you for letting me talk through that.
0: <laughs> well, I only did it because I assume you're going to call me tomorrow and ask about me.
1: <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah, you know, I will start a, a podcast. Uh, I'll call it uh, the Other Wildlife.
0: <laughs> okay. To recap, I told you there was a lot of poignant advice coming from Bill's side of the conversation. I'll share a lot of it on roastwestcoast.com, but I can't wait to reshare one piece of advice that he had for entrepreneurs. And I'm paraphrasing here, but Bill said, in order to make it, you need to make sure you believe in what you're doing have grit, perseverance, and endurance. It might sound really simple when I repeat it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't help to hear it over and over again. I know it made an impact on me. I'm going through the entrepreneurial journey right now with this podcast. Despite the name, San Franciscan Roaster Company is based in Carson City, Nevada. Bill moved his family near there after purchasing the company from the original owner, who was planning on just shutting it down. This was in 2008. If you were adulting back then you might remember it was a fairly hectic economic moment. The decision to purchase San Franciscan Roaster Company was an all-or-nothing proposition for Bill's family. It was also a big change for Bill, who had been in the education field. It was a decision fraught with risk. But at its core, it was an opportunity to work in coffee, which had become a pursuit he couldn't ignore. Things have worked out, in part because San Franciscan is actively working to make really durable, effective, and attractive coffee roasting machines, the kind of machines that generate brand loyalty and advocates. It's also working in part because, to quote Bill, time after time, things happened just at the right time. There can be multiple approaches to art that is successful, in the same way that there can be multiple approaches to roasting coffee. Whoever is roasting is doing so in their own unique yet excellent way. Bill and the team at SFR are striving to be the tool that gets them there. No other interviewee on this show has referenced the art of Monet or Van Gogh when trying to explain where they fit into the long lineage of coffee. Neither of those artists became famous painters without the cave painters of the Paleolithic era roughly three million years ago, who assembled the first rudimentary tools designed to transfer red and yellow clay to the stone walls of their homes. Finally, And because I can only hear it in the iconic voice of Wilford Brimley, guest starring as the Postmaster General Henry Atkins on Seinfeld, you either get it done, or you get it done.
1: Mr. Kramer, I've been uh, reading some of your material here. I gotta be honest with you, you make a pretty strong case. I mean, just imagine an army of men in wool pants run through the neighborhood handing out pottery catalogs door-to-door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's my job. <laughs> and I'm pretty damn serious about it. In addition to being a postmaster, I'm a general. And we both know it's the job of a general to, by God, get things done.
0: That is the bottom line in the life of all entrepreneurs. How you get there is up to you. Head to SanFranRoaster.com to learn more about the company, and follow at SanFranRoaster on Instagram to see their posts and reposts from roasters like this show's sponsor, Ignite Coffee Company, of San Franciscan Roasting Machines in action. I have to admit, I love the look of the SFRs. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can also follow at RoastWestCoast, though Coast, though. I'll be honest, you'll see more cool coffee content, learn more, and have a chance to be inspired by entrepreneurs if you head to roastwestcoast.com and subscribe to this show's newsletter. If the headlines are to be believed, it may be one of the few newsletters left that isn't written by an AI bot. I'm not saying it's as good as a bot's, but I do write it myself. Just kidding about the good part. It's so much better than a bot could do. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple or one of the other gazillion podcast platforms, you can find all the links I referenced in this show's podcast notes. And if you're listening and looking for coffee education, check out our other podcast, Coffee Smarter. It's specifically designed to improve your at-home coffee brewing skills and to encourage you to appreciate your going out to the cafe experience. This show is supported by a cadre of roast industry partners. They are Café La Terre, Camp Coffee Company, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Ignite Coffee Company, Marea Coffee, First Light Whiskey, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Ascend Coffee Roasters, Moster Coffee Company, and Steady State Coffee Roasting. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. Thanks to Bill Kennedy and Victoria Wairach at San Franciscan Roaster Company. I'll look forward to meeting yous in real life at SCA Portland, booth 253. To those of you listening today, thank you for being here. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least a thread of sanity, enabling you to make it through the day. Always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee. This podcast is supported by Coffee Cycle Roasting in Pacific Beach, San Diego, where they love two things. Making great coffee for you, and riding bicycles. Oh, and dogs, and vegan pastries. So four things. At Coffee Cycle, they love those four things. Uh, But also seeing the smiling faces of their neighbors, uplifting local artists, and creating a welcoming space for everyone to get a coffee or a tea that was truly crafted and cared for. So, those seven things. Only those seven things. And, well, they also love sharing coffee education. And talking about books. And going on group bike rides up big hills. And cruising along the beaches. And this is getting ridiculous. At Coffee Cycle, they love coffee. And they love making people happy. Everything fits into those two buckets. If you love them back, and you love the best coffee ever, Subscribe to one of their monthly coffee subscriptions on CoffeeCycleRoasting.com. House roasts, single origin, and bulk offerings are available because they want to make sure you're never short on coffee. Subscribe or make a one-time coffee order at CoffeeCycleRoasting.com.